how do you how do you tell your your own government there's a group of people out there who may because of something kill everybody That's American diplomat Richard McCoy talking about what a People's Temple whistleblower told him, that the Reverend Jim Jones was willing to kill his entire flock. Did U.S. officials miss opportunities that could have saved hundreds of lives? This is Oversight Jonestown, CQ Roll Call's podcast where we re-examine our nation's scandals through the prism of congressional investigation. We're telling this story at a moment when congressional oversight is again gripping the nation. I'm Sheila McVicker, and in this fourth episode, we lay out what American diplomats in Guyana faced when Jones transplanted his flock there after fleeing the law in California. They were the few U.S. officials there to have contact with the People's Temple before the Reverend Jim Jones led 917 other people to their deaths. You'll hear about a six-year-old boy who became central to Jim Jones and to the existence of the commune, a flirtation with the KGB and the Soviet Union, and preparations for mass murder and suicide. What did American diplomats both at the embassy in Guyana and at the State Department in Washington, D.C. know? When did they know it? We ask, were American diplomats negligent? You decide. I'm supposed to be there to assist all American citizens with whatever problems they might have. Here's Richard McCoy, the U.S. Consul, American Embassy, Georgetown, Guyana. And so here comes these group of Americans coming into Guyana. They settled on 27,000 acres of land leased from the Guyanese government by the People's Temple to form an agricultural commune carved from raw jungle. So Washington, the Jonestown, Guyana thing was really not on anybody's radar. Trust me when I tell you that. The Guyanese were delighted because they could turn around and say, hey, you know, to their own citizens, look, you think the United States is, uh, is the end all and be all for people? Look at these Americans who are coming in here because they want to live in Guyana. In Guyana... Jones had found a welcoming country, one aligned with the kind of socialism and Marxism he spouted. It was also a country that welcomed his cash, as he had done in California. The reverend used his money to buy power and protection. Years earlier, some people's temple members were sent in advance to begin building the commune. But in the summer of 1977, when Jones fled California with his flock, the population ballooned from just scores of people to nearly 1,000, almost overnight. The U.S. diplomats in the small, sleepy embassy in Georgetown, Guyana, now had a huge problem. They just didn't know it yet. In August, U.S. Consul Richard McCoy made his first trip to Jonestown. Uh, there were a number of complaints from parents of, uh, of the younger people who went to to Guyana with Jim Jones, and they were concerned about their safety. Jonestown was private property. That meant Richard McCoy or anyone else needed the permission of Jim Jones to enter. So no surprise visits. Each trip required negotiation with the People's Temple. Well, I said, look, you know, 
I'm only responding to requests from from um, family members in the United States. We call welfare and whereabouts requests, and they just want to make sure everybody they're 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 healthy, they're happy, they're. But if they want to leave, then they're going to leave, and that's what I used to tell the temple. If they, if they want to leave, they're going to leave. On this first trip, McCoy established his operating procedure: find the person he wanted to talk to, check their identity against their U.S. passport and hold a conversation as far away from prying eyes and ears as possible. I'm also a trained investigator. I was a counterintelligence, counterespionage specialist. And trust me, if I had seen any kind of fear in their eyes, or I would have just taken them out. Because I did. I talked to a lot of them individually, apart from anybody in the People's Temple. And I said, look, I got a car here. I got an airplane out there. If you want to leave right now, just take your ride in a car, and I'll arrange to get you back to the United States. Nobody's going to interfere with us, and I won't tolerate anybody interfering with us. And they all said no. But what he did not know, what no American diplomat knew because it was secret, is that Jim Jones prepped his community for these visits, issued threats, and rehearsed answers. Uh, tell me, do you put people in boxes here and bury them in boxes? Have you ever, ever, ever buried anybody in boxes? No. Uh... I'd look, more shocked, I'd look more shocked than that. No, we haven't. You know, uh, I'd say, why, hell no. Our sake, no. Huh? You stand there and look like this, I'm telling you, folks, you're going to be shit. Yeah. Oh, no, I don't know these questions. I told you to learn them. Back in Georgetown, in the first of many cables about the People's Temple, McCoy tells Washington that Jonestown might be, quote, a gigantic put-on, a stage show. He wasn't the only diplomat who was sensing there might be problems ahead. My name is Frank Tomania. I was desk officer for Guyana from uh, mid-1976 to mid-1978. Desk officers are based in Washington, D.C., and normally deal with politics and economics, bilateral issues, country to country, not issues or concerns about Americans abroad. As months passed, though, there was mounting tension. It was coming in the form of a growing pile of letters. We started to get bombarded by requests from aggrieved parents, congressmen, and senators. A powerful propaganda campaign begins. On one hand, there are relatives who claim their family members are being held against their will in Guyana and that they cannot communicate freely. They want the State Department to take action. On the other hand, there are supporters, some of Jim Jones's powerful California allies and members of the People's Temple, writing letters to senators, congressmen, the State Department, even the president, praising Jones and life in Guyana. They threaten to accuse the State Department of harassment. And in the middle, you have U.S. diplomats, without benefit of hindsight, trying to make sense of all of this. As the State Department is getting even more pressure from relatives, things begin to spiral further for Jim Jones. At the center, a custody battle for a six-year-old boy. Here's CQ Roll Call's Mark Strickerts. He's investigated the relationship between the State Department and Jonestown for years. John Victor Stone was born in 1972 to then Grace Stone and her husband, Tim. 
We've talked about both Grace and Tim Stone in previous episodes, described Grace's fear and flight from the church. Tim Stone remained with the church longer, and he was Jim Jones's man in the San Francisco District Attorney's Office while also working as Jones's lawyer and right-hand man. And initially, the Stones said John Victor, their son, was theirs. And then a year or two later, they put out a document saying, well, actually, uh, the father is Jim Jones, the pastor of the People's Temple Church. If all of this sounds a little crazy, it is. It was common practice in the People's Temple to make individuals sign documents alleging all kinds of things, future blackmail material, all of which might be completely untrue. Example, I stole money. I had sex with my brother's wife. Or my child, John Victor, is really the son of Jim Jones. In 1977, John Victor Stone is in Guyana, in Jonestown, with Jim Jones, and without his parents. How he got there is complicated, but not germane to the story. And Grace and Tim Stone have launched a custody battle with the People's Temple to have their son returned. In September 1977, the Guyanese judge orders that the child, John Victor, be brought to the capital, Georgetown, and to the courtroom and he orders the arrest of Jim Jones on charges of contempt. Jones, as he always does, pulls strings with Guyanese officials who are in his pocket and strikes a deal. The Guyanese police won't come into Jonestown to arrest him, but he cannot leave Jonestown. The U.S. diplomats in Guyana were now in a position where they were trying to avoid showing favoritism to either of the warring American parties Jones or the Stones, and over coming months, much of what they were told or heard came to the context of the custody battle, and that made it more difficult to understand what was really going on. What also matters about this custody case is it becomes a matter of life and death for Jones and comes to threaten the existence of Jonestown. Here's Jim Jones. And so they started a legal action demanding that I turn over the child, and we refused. So we're in violation of the law. And I said, we will die before we turn over any child. And here's Richard McCoy, recounting the day early in 1978 that a People's Temple member told him that if Jones lost the custody battle, everyone would pay with their lives. It's the first time a U.S. official hears this threat. And she said, well, what if we all commit suicide? I said, well, that's a choice you got to make. Uh, did I believe her? Mm, no, not really. Not really. At the not at the time. No, I, I, I told him, now, would they do it? Well, I guess as it turned out, yeah, they did. So I just pushed back on her and said, hey, you know, if the government of Guyana, if that judge rules in favor of the Stones, that boy is going back to the Stones. I don't care what you think you're going to do or not going to do. This custody battle remains at the center of the last months of Jonestown. We'll come back to it. For now, here's another example that shows how the State Department struggled both to understand and figure out how to deal with Jim Jones and Jonestown. The desk officer, Frank Tuminia, along with another U.S. diplomat, plans a trip to the commune. 
Was it a normal thing for you to decide to go off to see a large group of expatriate Americans if you were a desk officer saying going to another country? No, everything big equal, I wouldn't go. Let's say if there's a colony in France, so, so I, mean, I couldn't care less. The part this became a problem was because of this visits, complaints, letters. What was your visit like? I was the only one I was very uncomfortable. I refused to eat anything because one of the stories that I heard, and I believe it, that they were probably provided with some uh, something in their food, mixed with their food. Because all those people to me, as I've said before, they looked all like, yes, we are happy, that sort of thing. To me, look like robot-like people. And I said that, and I put it on the record. In my opinion, there was something that was slowing down their mental ability, not their physical ability. Taminia spent hours talking to Jim Jones. So we sat at the table three hours when he tried to convince us that this was the greatest place in the world. Freedom was supreme. Everybody was happy. He was basically the Messiah. I mean, he, the guy was uh, not all there. He had developed the delusion of grandeur. But that doesn't mean that this guy's gonna kill 600 people. I mean, even at that point, I myself wasn't quite sure. I became suspicious, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't go to the FBI or to any agency and say, look, investigate this guy because he's gonna kill everybody. He will sue the State Department for slander, libel, whatever. At an embassy meeting, Taminia was alone in his assessment. We had a big staff meeting when I came back to Georgetown. And we had an argument in which I told the ambassador that I was very concerned because I didn't think these people were normal. There was something wrong with them. And I was the only one who voiced any concerns. But there were things that Tuminia didn't say. A few months earlier, he had received a report from U.S. Customs that guns were allegedly being smuggled into Guyana by the People's Temple. He stuck it in his desk drawer. He never mentioned it or shared it with his colleagues in the field. That wasn't part of his official portfolio. That document didn't make its way to the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown until after the deaths. Consul Richard McCoy claims that report could have given him reason to go to the Guyanese government for help. Well, I, I thought that if, if, if I'd seen it, it would have made some difference to me because it would have en en enabled me to go to the uh, Guyanese government and to ask them to, 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 you know, to check into this because if, if, you know, there were all kinds of rumors going around that, that these people were bringing in all kinds of guns and, and rockets. In the spring of 1978, U.S. diplomats in Guyana still haven't been able to confirm reports of punishments, abuse, even that the people there were essentially being held hostage, captive to Jones and his whims. And they don't know that Jones holds suicide drills called White Knights. If you can't understand that willingness to die of this rather than compromise, the right to exist free from harassment, then you will never understand the integrity, honesty, and bravery of People's Temple. And here's something else they don't know. For months, some of Jones's most trusted lieutenants have on his instructions been searching for a new hiding place, far beyond the reach of American and Guyanese law. Who were they talking to as the Cold War continued? None other than the Soviet Union's KGB. We, as you know, have been praising the Soviet Union and we're making overtures with the Soviet Union. We're meeting with the Soviet Union tonight. We have told that, uh, we've told the Soviet Union, in fact, their wish 
Her slightest wish is our command. These tapes, like all the tapes recorded in Jonestown, were released under Freedom of Information Act requests filed by the Jonestown Institute, a repository of documents and original research. The KGB station chief, Fyodor Timofeyev, who's been meeting virtually every week with representatives of the People's Temple, is paying a visit. We have let our sympathies be quite publicly known that the United States government was not our mother, but that the Soviet Union was our spiritual motherland. He is deserving of your welcome and your praise. First of all, on behalf of the Embassy of the USSR, I'd like to send to you my deepest and our deepest and the most sincere greeting to the people of the first socialist and communist community of the United States of America in Guyana and in the world. What Jim Jones tells his flock he is looking for is safe passage, a new country where everyone in Jonestown could be relocated. People's Temple documents show that in reality, What Jones is looking for is a guaranteed way out for him, the child John Victor Stone, and other key temple leaders. Once more, he's looking to escape the reach of the law. So, we were really curious. Here's a large group of Americans cozying up to the KGB, and we wondered, was anyone paying attention? For decades, there have been debunked conspiracy theories about Jonestown and the CIA, how the commune was a CIA mind control experiment. We're not going there. We don't want to spread complete fiction. But we found it hard to believe that the CIA would ignore what was happening in Jonestown, that perhaps the agency knew about the punishments and abuse. Some intelligence experts said they didn't think so. Declassified CIA documents suggest not. But in the National Archives, some CIA documents related to Jonestown are still secret, redacted on grounds of national security. And from other intelligence experts we talked to, we got a different response. When we were in California interviewing the daughters of assassinated Congressman Leo Ryan, we asked Erin Ryan what she thought. She was a CIA officer during the 1980s, the Cold War. Do you think that the CIA would have had an interest in a group of 900 Americans who were living in that country in an isolated area, but who had representatives who were meeting on a regular basis with the Soviet Union embassy staff? Absolutely. I think it's hard for people now to grasp how pervasive the Cold War was in our global relations. Every third world country was a battleground between us and the Soviet Union. Is there any way the CIA would not be interested in no. those contexts? No, I, I have no doubt in my mind that they had that they had access to, to firsthand information on what was going on. I mean, that they would have been derelict if they didn't. And then we asked another expert. Well, my name is Oleg uh, Kalugin. Oleg Kalugin is a former general of the KGB a longtime spymaster for the Soviet Union in the United States. He was tried in absentia as a traitor by Russia. 
and now lives near Washington, D.C. So we know now that the, um, that the Soviet diplomat that these people were meeting in Georgetown was, in fact, the Soviet, the, no. the KGB station chief. Would that have made the CIA even more interested? Well, CIA has been always interested in I mean, <laughs> that's part of their job. What happens in May 1978 is one of the most significant events in the story of the last months of the life of the People's Temple and its followers. It rocked Jim Jones's world, and it ultimately rocked the world of the State Department. Consul Richard McCoy. She just came in and she just said, uh, I'm Debbie Blakey, I'm with, I'm with the People's Temple, but now I want to leave and go back to the United States. Debbie Layton Blakey, who worked at the People's Temple headquarters in the capital, Georgetown, was no ordinary member of the commune. She knew all the financial secrets, and there were many. And in May 1978, she wanted out and walked into the embassy. She said she was she was concerned for her safety, and I thought, okay, fair enough. And when she told me she was uh, was afraid because she was uh, as a as she put it defecting, I said, okay, I'll make sure you're, you're you know you're you're taken care of. And uh, and I, but an American citizen comes to me and says they need they want to they want to get repatriated back to the United States, and they they fear for their safety. Then I take him at face value. Leighton Blakey told McCoy her story and signed a sworn statement before McCoy helped her escape. I have a copy of the declassified statement. It's shocking to read it, looping handwriting on blue legal-sized paper. I, Deborah Blakey, hereby swear that the following statement is true. I have decided to leave the People's Temple organization because I'm afraid that Jim Jones will carry out his threat to force all members to commit suicide if a decision is made by the court here to have John Victor Stone return to his mother. I know that plans have been made to carry out this mass suicide by poison that is presently at Jonestown. I also know that plans are made to kill the members who are unwilling to voluntarily commit suicide. Mark Strickerts again. But it's pretty dramatic to me that this 25-year-old woman would make this 200-word uh, statement predicting exactly what would happen, warning the federal government that something bad, very bad, is about to go down in Jonestown, and no one listens to her. On at least three occasions, McCoy told Leighton Blakey she needed to take her story to the FBI. She never did. For McCoy... Going to law enforcement was a kind of test of Leighton Blakey's truthfulness. After her return to the U.S., she didn't go, and neither did McCoy. He never raised this with his superiors and never sought the permission he would have needed to go to the FBI. I mean, look, I know that in some kind of fictionalized version of the story, there'd be the, there'd be the hero consul who would go into the jungles of Guyana and try to rescue all of these people from this terrible, terrible prig. But that's not going to happen. Because who am I going to go in the jungle with? I mean, you know, and, and who's going to come? I mean, if I go to the Guyanese government, I'm going to ask them to provide me with a, with a squad of uh, uh, jungle-trained special troops, and we're going we're gonna to sneak into Jonestown to see what's going on. And what if we sneak in there and we find out everything's normal? I'd be back in Washington having to hire a lawyer to, uh, to defend myself in court. 
and the only public explanation Debbie Leighton Blakey ever offered as to why she did not go to the FBI was that she was, quote, too paranoid. The statement she swore went into a safe in the embassy and remained there until after November 18, 1978. In Jonestown, Leighton Blakey's departure was shocking and a betrayal. It was kept secret from most of the community for days. Here's Jim Jones, finally revealing that she had gone. Enemy of the people, class enemy of the people, Blakey, who joins the top of the list, said the most horrible things. As I said, buried people alive. That's how low she has stooped and how far she has allowed her mind to be manipulated. A month after her return to California, Leighton Blakey swore a much more detailed affidavit repeating the same allegations of planning for mass murder and suicide. That affidavit got a lot of ink in California newspapers. Copies eventually did reach the State Department. But no one, not the State Department and not the FBI, acted on her allegations. In Jonestown, after Leighton Blakey's defection, there is evidence of pre-planning for mass murder and suicide. The noose is tightening, and Jones is making plans to bring an end to the community. There's a very disturbing Jonestown memo. Quote, Cyanide is one of the most rapidly acting poisons. I would like to give about two grams to a large pig to see how effective our batch is to be sure we don't get stuck with a disaster like would occur if we use thousands of pills to sedate the people. And then the cyanide was not good enough to do the job. It goes on to list the symptoms of poisoning by cyanide, adding, it may take up to three hours to kill. Typewritten, two pages. Remember, this community kept records taped or written of just about everything. It's signed by Larry Schacht, who acted as the medical doctor in Jonestown, and written after the departure of Leighton Blakey. It was found by the FBI in the thousands of pages of documents recovered in the aftermath at Jonestown, and later released under Freedom of Information Act requests filed by the Jonestown Institute. It's not clear when, or how, or by whom, the cyanide used on November 18, 1978, was brought to Jonestown. As it happened, five months before the end of the People's Temple, Richard McCoy finished his tour of duty in Guiana and replaced Frank Tominia on the Guiana desk at the State Department. McCoy's replacement was a less experienced officer. Here's Mark Strickerts. So McCoy comes back to Washington, and frankly, he didn't uh, mention the mass suicide and possible murder because he, like everybody else in the Jonestown story, never thought it would actually happen. Richard McCoy again. How do you, how do you tell your, your own government there's a group of people out there who may, because of something, kill everybody? And okay, if you're going to do it, how are you going to stop it? Government Guyana had nobody out there that could stop it. They had, a, they had a district office in Port Kaituma, and maybe they had one or two policemen there, and that, um, possibly. How are they going to stop it? 
1978, the U.S. Ambassador to Guyana, John Burke, writes an unusual telegram to Washington. It's important. He seeks permission from the State Department to go to Guyanese officials, many of whom are in Jones's pocket, and ask that the Guyanese pay more attention to Jonestown and stop treating it as a separate entity within their country. No American law enforcement agency had the right to operate there with that explicit Guyanese government permission. The ambassador's request would ensure that Guyanese law, at least, would be enforced in Jonestown. And what, what happens? The short answer is State Department in Washington said, no, don't do it. It was a couple hundred word statement saying, at the present time, we see no reason to meddle in Guyanese affairs. Ambassador Burke accepted Washington's answer. He didn't push back. We're now in July. The last time anyone from the embassy made a trip to Jonestown was May. Complaints and letters from worried relatives and involved politicians continue to pile up. U.S. diplomats said they were prevented by weather from visiting in August. And the People's Temple kept making excuses to block visits. Remember, Jonestown is private property and permission is needed. And Jones is deteriorating. What the fuck's going on? God damn my life. Meanwhile, Jim Jones's drug addictions have him up all night and keeping the community up all night with his rants and pro-Soviet propaganda. Jones is also physically ill. People are exhausted. The State Department is no closer to figuring out how much of a problem they have with the People's Temple. At the same time, the custody battle for John Victor Stone is coming to a head in the Guyanese courts which, by the way, was still unresolved in November 1978. John Victor was one of the 917 victims found murdered in his bed. The Reverend Jim Jones knows that there are many in the commune who want to leave and who are being prevented from doing so. All of this is happening while Congressman Ryan, responding to concerns of his California constituents, is preparing to visit. Congressional investigators would later write that no one they interviewed from the State Department, quote, ever anticipated the degree of violence actually encountered by Ryan and his party, and that the U.S. Embassy in Guyana did not appreciate mounting indications of highly irregular and illegal activities in Jonestown. Frank Tuminia again. Do you think the State Department should have been more aggressive in its warnings to Ryan and his team? What should they have been told? I would have said to him that, Congressman, what you think is commendable. We appreciate what you're doing. But keep in mind that Mr. Reverend Jones is not a, a regular, normal thinking person. He will take any attack on anything to the community as the attempt to destroy the community, which he, he is the community. In November, the congressman from California and his delegation finally arrive in Georgetown, Guyana. And in Jonestown, Jim Jones is ranting to his flock. I didn't come this far to be pushed about by someone from Burlingame or San Mateo. And now we found the CIA. We found our link. He's the catalyst. We found out just exactly that. He is the catalyst. So as far as I'm concerned, he can take his, uh, he can take his ass back to San Mateo 
and uh, we're going to be at the gate just like we have always been and they want to come through NBC said they're coming through and they're going to come through tomorrow we'll see about that we might collect us a couple of cameras or two I don't know Jones had convinced himself that if anyone left the People's Temple Commune the House of Cards would collapse and there was no one in his inner circle who was prepared to stop him was triggered by the by the congressman's visit and the fact that when the congressman left people left with him and jones thought the whole thing was going to fall apart and that's why he did what he did the guianese pathologist later testified the cyanide had been prepared at least 24 hours before it was used the congressman's dead as with everything about jonestown nothing is as it seems at first there's always more to the story this is a CBS News special report. The dead are Congressman Leo Ryan, Democrat from California. The first breaking news reports flashed on that Saturday night informed America of the assassination of Congressman Leo Ryan and the shooting deaths of four others in his delegation. The other murders and suicides by poison had not yet been discovered. Meanwhile, in Washington, the former desk officer, Frank Tuminia, was summoned urgently to the State Department. It was the psychiatrist who particularly keen on talking to me. It may be that he had read my report where I thought that this was a certain kind of madness. So this is a, a psychiatrist working for the State Department? Yes, but he sat me like this and he said, Frank, I want you to tell me, is he gonna kill them all? And I said, yes. The bodies of 383 men, women, and children have been found at Jonestown. 400 suicides and killings. Perhaps as many as 200 of those dead are children. It now appears there may be as many as 780 bodies total. The mass murder-suicide that left more than 900 followers of cult leader Jim Jones dead. In the next episode, you'll hear even more about how oversight in the U.S. failed the victims of Jonestown. First, how two other high-profile assassinations, those of Harvey Milk and George Moscone, stole the spotlight from Jonestown and squelched demands for accountability. And then we go to Washington, D.C., the heart of power and oversight, and find out why, after the deaths of 918 Americans, many of them murdered, there was never a call for justice. Why was the congressional investigation limited? Why didn't a larger and more public one take place? Stay with us. Oversight Jonestown was reported and written by me and Joanne Levine. This episode was produced by Evan Campbell. Editing on this episode by Martha Ann Overland. Fact-checking by Noah Berman. Oversight Jonestown could not have happened without the reporting help and insights of our CQ colleagues, Mark Strickerts and Marsha Myers. And we are especially indebted to their work in this episode. A huge shout-out to Jillian Roberts for her tireless support. If you visit our website at rollcall.com forward slash Jonestown, you'll see a beautiful design by Marnie Prince. It was built by Patrick Blinkhorn, Rajiv Manath, and Tom Schaefer. 
Oversight is a production of CQ Roll Call.